All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate that worship team, Mark. If you would, please stand and we'll read 1 Corinthians 13, just verses 4 through 7. Give you a chance to stretch your legs a little bit after sitting during that time. But we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And what I'd like to do is use verses 4 through 7 to think about being thankful to God this Thanksgiving in light of the fact that um, obviously all of us are thinking about things we're thankful for, hopefully, and uh, the greatest thing we can be thankful for is actually the love of God. Well, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. One of the things I've thought a lot about is the fact that the Bible says that God is love. And so you can look at verses 4 through 7, and you, you could replace the word agape or love with God. God is patient, God is kind, and all the things that we see here. And the Bible talks about the fact that in pursuing what Paul tells us to do here, we're to be imitators of God. That's what it says in Ephesians 5, that as God has loved us in Jesus, we are to imitate that love. And so what I want us to think about uh, as a sort of Thanksgiving meditation, I guess, today, is to think about how God loves us in these ways and calls us to imitate him in loving each other in these ways as well. As I've already mentioned, we're all probably thinking about what we're thankful for, and we even have a, a text thread in our family now because it's so hard for us all to get together and talk about what we're thankful for each day. We now do it through a text thread. And it's very fun to see how people are thankful for different things each day. Well, in Psalm 118.1, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And if you're reading through your Bible in a regular way, whether it's every year, every few years, or whatever it might be, you may have noticed that that phrase, God is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting, is repeated throughout the Old Testament over and over again in various contexts. In fact, David charged the singers to sing about the goodness of God and his loving kindness. And so you could argue that the most frequent or most prevalent way to praise God and thank God in the Old Testament is to praise him and thank him for his loving kindness, for his love for us. And I think there's a good reason for that. Why would David charge the singers to sing about the love of God? And why do we often sing about the love of God? Because it is not natural for us to truly think and believe that God loves us. There's a very well-known, famous uh, woman soccer player who recently was playing her last game and she injured her leg. And uh, during the... Um, interview at, after the game, uh, she made the comment, I'm not a religious person, 
But I think the fact that I injured my leg six minutes into the last game I was ever going to play is evidence that there is no God. Now, what does she mean by that? She meant that if there was a God, he would be good and loving. And because this happened to me, he, there must not be a good and loving God, and so therefore I choose to believe there is no God at all. And yet she was a very successful soccer player, uh, actually uh, earned a, a gold medal in soccer. And, and so we're prone to look at the negative things and say, well, that's proof there is no God or is no loving God. But we don't look at the good things like winning a gold medal and saying, well, that's proof there is a God and that he must be good and loving. So it's interesting how we process things in life in that way. And yet, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, talked about the glory of God, specifically in terms of his love, that God is like an ocean of love, that if you were to see, so to speak, the glory of God, you would see beams of love emanating from God. That is his glory. Well, it's also interesting to me when I think about what Paul is saying here in terms of how do I grow in love like this? John says in 1 John, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. Then he goes on to say, we love because he first loved us, which means believing in the love of God for me is crucial for me to love like he loves. Well, there's an interesting verse in Malachi that I thought about this morning, where God himself is talking to Israel, which is a mixed uh, company. Most of them were not believing in God. There, were, there was a remnant at that time. But God says to Israel in Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. And the response from Israel is, how? How have you loved me? And Spurgeon actually preached a sermon on that text entitled, God's Love Shamefully Questioned. And at the very beginning of that sermon, he says, man by nature is a lump of ingratitude. Meaning that we do not see how God is loving us, whether as unbelievers or believers many times. We fail to see the wonderful love of of God, and yet the thing that we should most be thankful for this Thanksgiving is the love of God, the loving kindness of God, because everything we experience is from the loving kindness of God. It's a manifestation of the loving kindness of God. If we thank God this year for our family, or for our new home, or for our health, or for grace to deal with lack of health, or whatever it might be, that's ultimately to be traced back to a God who's expressing his love, even through those good things and the grace given for even hard things that we're going through. So what I'd like to do, just for the time that we have left, is to uh, look at what we have time for in verses 4 through 7 with regard to love and how it relates to how we can be thankful for God loving us this year. And the first thing is to say, we should be thankful that God is patient with us. That he is patient. 
Uh, God is long-suffering with us, and that's what the word patient means, long-tempered or long-suffering, meaning that, in a sense, he suffers long with our failure and our sin and, and those kinds of thing, things. God is long-suffering with us in the midst of our sin and failure. He is not hindered by our unbelief in his love. As people have said, there are various ways the Bible talks that it pains God when we do not trust him, when we don't believe that he really loves us. But he's long-suffering, obviously with all people in one sense, but especially with us, his children. You know, we often talk about the patience of Job, but do we ever think about the patience of God with Job? Because God was very patient with Job. Uh, Job was suffering, And I think all of us can understand how difficult it was for Job to go through the suffering that he went through. And yet, if you read the book of Job, you find Job talking about God being his enemy, God attacking him, God being cruel to him. And yet, God didn't strike him down. God didn't um, do anything to retaliate uh, toward Job. At the end of the book, he does um, lovingly, gently rebuke um, Job's wrong thinking, wrong reasoning. And at the end of the book, uh, Job says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Uh, That's me. Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So he says... In the book, God, you're, you're my enemy now. You've, you've turned against me. You're being cruel to me. And at the end, he says, I didn't know what I was talking about. I did not understand how much you were really loving me through all of that. And so God was so patient with Job, even when Job was accusing him of being cruel, accusing him of being his enemy accusing him of wrongdoing, questioning his character and questioning his ways. And so God is patient with all of us in that respect because we're all there to one degree or another at different times, questioning what God is doing and maybe even at times feeling like God is being cruel and unkind. And yet he's so very patient with us. Someone has said, if you look at the Old Testament, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, and you read a lot about... um, judgment in the old testament but if you really think about uh the length of time that's being covered in the old testament the old testament is a history of god's patience not a history of his harshness his patience with us with men in general and obviously his patience with us as his people well the second thing it says in this passage is not only is god patient but god is kind And we can be thankful this Thanksgiving that God is not only patient with us, but he's kind to us. Which means he's at work to do us good, even when it it doesn't look like it or when it doesn't feel like it. He is being kind to us. Um, I thought about Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Joseph is favored by his father, and his brothers are jealous, and they sell him into slavery. And... He's a slave for many, many years, and then eventually 
God exalts him to second place in the kingdom of Egypt. And God actually saves uh, Joseph's family, his brothers and his father, through what his brothers did to him. They were unkind to him, and God was kind through their unkindness. They sold him into slavery. He used, God used all that to actually save the very ones who were unkind and to save Joseph as well. So that there are many times people are not kind to us. But does that mean God is not being kind to us? No, God is kind to us even through the unkindness of others, which is an amazing, amazing thing. That's why it says God works all things together for our good. That even if they mean it for evil, he means it for good. That's what uh, Joseph said. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, namely you. It's an amazing thing just how kind God is even when we're not kind, even when people aren't kind to us, the kindness of God triumphs in our lives, which is a great, great thing. Someone has said that maybe the most important word in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word for hesed, which is the word that we translate either loving kindness or steadfast love. And that the, the amazing thing about God is not that he's all-powerful, and uh, all-knowing and those kinds of things because we would expect that of a God that he would be all-powerful, all-knowing and those kinds of things. What What is surprising about the God of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, according to Michael Card and others, is that he is so kind. He is so kind, so patient with people who rebel against him. He, Michael Card says... This hesed or this loving kindness is when the person from whom I ought to have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's kindness, truly kindness. When I get what I don't deserve, in fact, I get the opposite of it. That's what kindness is. And that's what we've received this year. We've re- we've We have a father who is so incredibly kind that he doesn't give us what we deserve, and is so incredibly good that he continually gives us what we don't deserve. And that's what we are thanking him for when we thank him at, at Thanksgiving. But the third thing is, he says, that we can be thankful that God is not jealous towards us. Now, what does that mean? It means that God isn't out to rob us of our happiness, but wants us to be truly happy, even when we are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. The the basic idea of not being jealous there is not striving after what others have so that you can have it for yourself or so that you can just take it away from them to make them unhappy. It's the idea of being very, very selfish. God is not selfish at all. He is very much about wanting us to be truly happy, not robbing us of it like Adam and Eve thought, but actually giving it to us. And what I love about The ministry of Jesus is, if you look in the book of John, it says the very first miracle Jesus worked was he turned water into wine at a wedding. He didn't raise someone from the dead. He didn't heal a blind man. Uh, He didn't walk on water. 
he turned water into wine. It seems like a, a small thing. But it says, at the end of that story, John says this, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, manifested his goodness, manifested his love. Why? Because in the Old Testament, wine oftentimes symbolized happiness, joy. It talks about the fact that wine, which makes man's heart glad, wine makes life merry. So his very first miracle was meant to say, this is what I'm all about. I'm about making you truly and forever glad, joyful, happy in God, in me. That you can have my joy and so it's an amazing, wonderful thing. Spurgeon said, There is nothing in the law of God and therefore nothing in the heart of God that is out to rob you of happiness. He's actually seeking to give it to you. And yet people say, no, Nope, I don't believe that's really what you're up to. I think it's a bait and switch. I think that's what's really going on here. And it takes the grace of God for us to really believe that he is truly that good. Spurgeon said also, we are far too apt to entertain hard thoughts of God. He said, let us never forget that our hard speeches have all been false speeches and that our suspicions of our God have always been libels upon him. He says, on taking a survey of our whole life, which, or even the last year at Thanksgiving, we see that the kindness of God has run all through it like a silver thread. So what should happen this Thanksgiving is that we look back over the year and we look at the silver thread of God's kindness to us throughout the year. Well, the fourth thing that this passage says is that we should be thankful that God does not brag to you. And I have to explain this a little bit. Um, God speaks the truth in love in order to lift us up, sometimes to bring conviction, but never to bring condemnation. The idea of bragging there is the idea of just being a windbag, just um, exalting yourself, even if it makes others uh, feel bad, uh, even if it puts down other people. God doesn't ever say anything that's not true. He's not a windbag just blowing smoke, so to speak. He always speaks the truth, and he actually always speaks the truth not to bring condemnation, but to bring conviction and restoration. He tells us what he tells us about himself and about us so that we might actually be encouraged to trust him in all the ways we need to. It's interesting to me, uh, in the story of the woman caught in adultery, the um, religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus without the guy, just the woman, and they say, don't you know that law, the law says, Moses said, that this woman ought to be stoned for what she did? And obviously Jesus begins writing in the sand there, and eventually they all go away. And Jesus speaks to the woman and says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. He could have spent an hour talking about the evil of what she had done. 
Because you can, I guarantee you, she did not see how evil it was what she had done from God's perspective. He didn't spend that an hour doing that. He said, I do not condemn you. So it was without condemnation. He spoke in a way that was without condemnation, but neither did he excuse her sin. He said, go and sin no more. You need to see that what you're doing is wrong. You need to repent of it, to trust God's word. You need to trust God. But I don't condemn you. So what I'm saying is, Jesus could have handled that very differently. Could have made her feel incredibly condemned for what she did because it was a sin. But that's not the way he approached it. He was very, very kind and tender toward her. And it was still a call to repentance, but it's done in an incredibly loving way. The fifth thing I want to touch on is very closely related to this because 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 boasting and arrogance are obviously uh, all about the same kind of heart attitude. But we should be thankful that not only is God very much about lifting us up and turning us to him, not putting us down, but he's not arrogant with us. He always affirms what is true of himself and us and is incredibly gentle and tender with us even when we're very ignorant, even when we're throwing tantrums. Now, I connect the whole idea of arrogance or not being arrogant and being gentle because of what Jesus said, that he was gentle and humble in heart. He wasn't arrogant, and he tied it to his gentleness, that his tenderness toward others was actually the result of him thinking rightly about himself. So that in order for me to be tender to others, I have to think rightly about myself. I can't be arrogant, puffed up with wrong ideas. And God, I think, exhibits this kind of not being arrogant, uh, so to speak, and being tender in the story of Jonah. Jonah um, goes all the way around the world, so to speak, to get to the point of doing what God told him to do. God being very patient with Jonah, could have, could have stuck, struck Jonah down when he got on that boat, but he didn't do it. He brought Jonah back around. Jonah preaches to Nineveh, and the people repent, and Jonah is angry. The Bible says in Jonah chapter 4, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he says, you know what? This is why I got on that boat. Because I knew that you were more than likely going to actually let these people off the hook. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So he says, now, just take my life. I'm done. And God comes to him very gently and says, do you have good reason to be angry? That's a very tender approach. It's a very kind approach loving approach. Jonah is throwing a tantrum because he doesn't like what God didn't do in this case. And yet God comes to him and he he deals with him very tenderly and actually causes the plant to grow up and give him some shade. But then he takes the plant away and Jonah's mad again about that. 
But God does that, not to be mean, but to teach Jonah a lesson and say, you cared about that plant, even though you only experienced the benefit of it one day. Should I not have greater compassion on the thousands of people in Nineveh than you have on that plant? Can't you see how wrong it is of you to have so much compassion for a plant but have no compassion for these people? And don't you think it's more than right for me to have compassion on them? And so he's so tender, so kind in dealing with Jonah. And he is that way with us too. Um, the reality is all of us are, are Jonah's at times. All of us are Job's at times. That's the why God. That's why God put characters in the Bible, because we're supposed to identify with them. We're not supposed to say, "I can't believe Job responded that way" or "Jonah responded that way." Well, the reality is, we all respond that way in one shape or another, and we're supposed to identify with them and see the love of God being shown to them, because that's what He's doing for you and me. That's exactly what he's doing in our lives. He's being so patient, so kind, so tender, and dealing with us like that every day. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to believe that. And he wants us to thank him for it and to, and to rest in that and rejoice in that and to actually know and believe the love that God has for us. Well, he goes on, Paul does, and he says, sixthly, Be thankful that God does not act becomingly towards you, unbecomingly towards you. Now, we talked about the fact that that whole idea is the the idea of dishonoring someone or being discourteous to someone or acting disgracefully towards someone. And uh, you might say that God always shows us the utmost consideration, which is an amazing thing to think about, that he shows us the greatest courtesy, if you want to use those terms, that God um, is never rude. He's never uh, selfishly offensive. Now, there are times when we're offended by God, but it's not because he's being rude or offensive toward us. Uh, God is amazing in terms of how he actually treats believers and unbelievers. And um, one of the stories that highlights this is just the fact that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he washed the disciples' feet. What was that? That was a common courtesy. If you, were, if you came into someone's house and you've been wearing sandals and walking through the dirt and the dust, a common courtesy would be for typically the lowly servant to wash your feet. It was a courtesy. It's a kindness. And yet Jesus says, that's how I want you to love each other. I want you to be willing to do whatever. That's one of the points. But another point is, I want you to show incredible consideration and courtesy toward each other. Even if you don't deserve it. Because he did that. He washed the feet of the one who was going to betray him and deny him and run away. He was incredibly considerate and and courteous, if you want to think about it in those terms. Spurgeon has also said, God's love does not depend on what we are. 
it flows from his own heart. We might be a betrayer. We might be a denier. We might be a runaway. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus when he's going to be crucified person. But God loves us even when we find ourselves in those places. Paul goes on and says, he talks about the fact that love does not seek its own. So that we should be thankful that God does not seek his own with respect to us. Now, God does seek his own glory. But he doesn't seek his own glory in such a way that he, that he doesn't have any consideration for our own happiness. He actually brings us into his own glory. Um, someone has said you could um, understand what's being talked about here, and I think this might have been Matthew Henry, that what, what God does is he pulls us into his own self-love. Does God love himself? Yes, he does. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other infinitely. Are we called to love ourselves? In a sense, yes, because the Bible says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So there is a legitimate care for yourself and love for yourself, but we're not to love ourselves privately. We're not to love ourselves sinfully. Therefore, in loving ourselves, we're to pull other people into our self-love, which means I consider other people, I pursue their happiness, and that's what God does. So when it says that we're not to seek our, our own um, or seek his own, it's basically to not to do so privately, but to do it in such a way that I pursue my own happiness, but I also pursue the happiness of those around me. It's not a private pursuit. And God is the same way. On the night that Jesus was betrayed again, he's talking to his disciples and they begin to realize that he's going to leave. And they, they're becoming sad. And Jesus says, you know, if you really understood what was happening here, you'd be happy for me. You'd be happy that I'm going back to the Father. And then at one point in, in John 14, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, was actually excited about going back to the Father. He said, if you really love me, you'd be happy that I'm going back to the Father too. But it wasn't like, I'm just glad that I'm going to be gone. And you guys can just deal with it. It wasn't his attitude at all. He also said, but you know what? I'm also glad that I'm going to prepare a place for you because my happiness is also found in pursuing your happiness. It's not a private thing at all. Spurgeon also says, because God is infinitely happy, he delights in the happiness of his creatures. It's truly, truly an amazing thing. Paul goes on to say that love is not provoked. We can be thankful that God is not provoked by us. What does that mean? It means that God, you could say, is calm and unflinching in his love for us, even in the face of our struggles and outbursts. Not that we ever struggle. Not that we ever have any kind of outburst toward God, right? Um, 
you think about Moses. Moses and Aaron were sent to tell Mo, uh, Pharaoh to let God's people go. And what happens is uh, Pharaoh doesn't like that kind of talk. and He doesn't like the idea that the Israelites are thinking about leaving. And so he takes away the straw. And they begin uh, to have to make bricks without any straw, but they still have to keep up their quotas. And so because they're not keeping up their quota for brick making, they start getting beaten and punished for that. And the leaders of Israel come to Moses and Aaron and they say, what are you guys doing? You're making things worse, not better. And Moses turns to God and says, oh, Lord, why, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, the idea of being um, provoked is the idea of being kind of poked, like going up to somebody and poking them in the chest or poking them in the eye. It's the idea of doing something to them that could result in a quick and violent reaction. What did, what did God do when, in a sense, God pokes God in the chest and says, you aren't delivering them at all. You're not doing what you said you were going to do. Well, you go on, and at the beginning of the next chapter, which follows the verses I just read, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God simply says, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. It's a very kind and patient response. If you really think about what Moses was doing. Moses was accusing God of not doing what he said he was going to do. And God very patiently, very lovingly said, I'm not done yet. I I know what I'm doing. Just keep trusting me. Keep trusting me. All I'm trying to do here this morning is to say, All these stories are meant to remind us of how we often respond to God, even as Christians. I'm I'm talking about people of faith here. I'm not talking about unbelievers. People of faith that are struggling with what God is or isn't doing and not responding well. And God's love is continually being shown. His patience, his kindness continues to do them good. And God wants us to know that's exactly what he's doing for us. That's exactly how he's responding to us as well. Well, there's so many other things. I don't have time to go through all these other things in detail. But let me just highlight a few of these things as I wrap up here. Paul says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And we could say what that means is God doesn't hold our offenses against us in order to punish us nor does he allow it to prejudice prejudice uh, us or him against us in the sense that he still thinks well of us, even though he knows our sin and our failure so very, very well. It says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. He doesn't rejoice in evil that's in our lives or evil that's done to us. 
but he actually opposes it. And he does so in such a way that we ought to say, like Spurgeon said, we would not care for a God who did not hate sin. God's love for us manifests the reality that he hates sin. He hates the sin in our lives. He hates the sin in the lives of others against us as well. And if we think about it, we wouldn't want God to be any other way because that would undermine our happiness and the happiness of others. And so God is continually um, fighting sin in our lives and working for what is good. One of the stories, one more story I really love is the story of when Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching, there's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus calls him up and Jesus asks the question, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And the religious leaders look at him and don't say a word. And the scripture says that Jesus after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he healed him. What Jesus is doing there is he's looking around and he's looking at the unloving hardness of heart of those people toward this man who is suffering. The reality is, is that we tend to think that the religious leaders are more like God than Jesus is. We tend to think God is the one who's hard of heart toward people that are suffering. That's why he allows all this suffering. That's not true. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when Jesus says, or when the Bible says, Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved their hardness of heart, God every day is grieved at the hardness of heart of sinners, of people, and he is not indifferent to people's suffering. Not at all. Well, there, like I said, there's so many things, there's other things that could be touched on here. But let me just close by just encouraging us to think about the fact that God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jonathan Edwards basically says, God's love is not affected by circumstances. God's love never ends. And so the love that he has for us as his people, as his children, is a love that is full and it's forever Our challenge is believing it in the face of our suffering, in the face of our sin, in the face of the things that we don't expect to happen in a world in which God exists and God is loved. Just like that soccer player who thought, well, if this happens in this world, it must mean there really is no God of love. And yet God says, over and over in his word, come to know and believe the love which I have for you. And that is where your joy is going to be. And that is how you're going to be able to love in greater, deeper, richer ways. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We do pray that you would help us this Thanksgiving to 
to see the good things that we enjoy, the, the grace that we've experienced even in our hard times, that we would see them as real expressions of your love, that you're not like what we see in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, where good things are being done, but there's no love involved. Good things being given, but there's no love involved. Help us to believe that all the good things that we are going to be celebrating this Thanksgiving are to be traced back to you, but they're also to be traced back to an expression of your heart of love for us individually, as well as collectively as your people. Help us to believe that you've truly loved us. And so when your word says to each one of us, I have loved you, help us to say this Thanksgiving, yes, you have, in ways that I could never deserve, in ways that I cannot fully comprehend, in ways that I'm so thankful for. Fill my heart with love for you and gratitude to you for loving me so well. And I thank you that you will always love me forever and ever, not because I deserve it, but because of your son. Please help us, Father, to grow in our love for you and in our gratitude to you. Deliver us from our uh, natural uh, tendency to be lumps of ingratitude. Deliver us from that and help us to see your love in greater, deeper, richer ways and to love you more and to love others more like you love us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.